Actually, I had planned on starting my next series today, but as I was driving around this week arguing with God about what I was going to preach about, he won the argument, of course, um, which is always a good thing when God wins the argument instead of me. Um, he's taken me back actually to one of the very first messages that I preached here as your pastor uh, four and a half years ago. And it's tweaking it a little bit as a... Uh, and what God is, is, I believe he shared with me and reminding me about myself and maybe what he is reminding us also as a church, as his people, that we as the body of Christ need to remember our first love. It's easy in this environment. It's easy in our community. It's easy in society in general to get so caught up in the busyness and all that's going on around us, to get caught up in our personal walk, what we're personally doing uh, to forget and neglect our personal relationship with Christ. This church in Ephesus, Paul is writing here, I mean John is writing rather, not Paul, John is writing to the church in Ephesus, actually Jesus is writing to the church in Ephesus via John, he says to the church in Ephesus, write this, to the, him, to the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden stands, to the church in Ephesus, write this. Now understand the church in Ephesus. Let me give you a kind of a snapshot view, a time-lapse view of the church in Ephesus, which is why you have a time-lapse picture behind me. The church in Ephesus was started in around 50 A.D., maybe, uh, don't have an exact timeline. Paul approached, uh, he went to the, in, in Acts chapter 18, went to the river where a lot of the Jews met and ran across Priscilla and Aquila, and they had become believers at some point, and he then started a church out of their home, and that church started, became what became known as the church in Ephesus. It grew and was very, very prosperous in that society. And understand that that society at the time, there in Ephesus, it was a totally heathen totally hedonistic society. It was the politically the capital of Asia Minor there. Commercially, it had great highways that passed through it all the time. Huge seaport there. So all that contributed to the wealth of that city. But it also brought in a lot of other things as well. It was kind of known as the Vanity Fair of that area. And if you don't know what Vanity Fair is, you need to be here Friday night to watch Pilgrim's Progress. It was known as the Vanity Fair, this, this, this city that brought in folks from all regions and became, maybe in our terms, more like Austin or San Francisco. Very ungodly and was focused totally on itself. It was a very wealthy city in that the Temple of Diana became the central bank for that city, for the whole region. People would come from miles and miles away, from other cities, they would come and make their deposits at the Temple of Diana. It was who's going to rob the temple, right? Instead of placing it in Wells Fargo or in Chase Manhattan Bank, they came and placed it in the Temple of Diana. And so it became a very, very important centerpiece of that city. People went to the temple not just to worship, but also to make their deposits and to withdraw their funds. But as a result, the temple had a huge impact and a huge influence in that region. Religiously, that temple became the center point of worship of the, of the fertility goddess Diana. 
thousands of priests and priestesses served in that temple, many of them as prostitutes. So people came to pay their respects to Diana and pay their respects in other ways as well. It impacted that society and that culture. And yet in the midst of that, you have a small church, about 50, 52 A.D., that was started and began evangelizing and ministering within that city, within that context. It didn't start out huge. We picture, we picture these churches in the old, and they were, they're meeting in, in big arenas, they're b- meeting in bigger places, and they're huge churches. Now if you go to Europe and you see these huge coliseums, these huge m- monuments to faith, but they didn't start out that way. It was a very small congregation, but made a huge impact all those around. It became a significant gospel outpost in that city. So much so that Paul stayed and ministered there for two years to help strengthen them and to develop them so they might become this huge impact into their community to teach them what needed to be known. And now, about 45 years later, Jesus is writing to this church via through John. He writes that it's become a second-generation church that was apparently living off the prestige of its past. It it started off strong, started off making a huge impact, but now, 45 years later, it was just living on its laurels, living on its tradition, living on its reputation from what it had been. And in chapter 1 of Revelation, Christ is being exalted, and he's saying, Church, you are not continuing the exaltation process of me. You're living off your past. The past was great, but its present condition was spiritually perilous. And God is watching. God is watching what that church is doing. So read with me the first few verses here of chapter 2. Verses 2, 3, and 6. God is watching this. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Let's skip down to verse 6. He says, Yet this thing you have, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So God is telling, he's commending this church for their good works. He's commending this church for their doctrinal purity. He's commending this church for what they have been doing in the community, for how they've remained pure, they've remained set apart. They've not given in to the culture. They've continued spending time in his word and continued spending time on setting themselves apart for the work. And yet, not all is good. One of the most scariest passages, I think, in Scripture is that first, there in the first part of chapter, verse 2, he says, I know your works. You ever think about the fact that God knows you? I know you. I know your works. I know your life. I know your heart. I know how many hairs are on top of your head. I know what you've been through. I'm watching you. And how that relates to our life right now. Sometimes I don't want God to watch me. Anybody else with me there? 
Sometimes I don't want God to know what I'm thinking. Sometimes I don't want God to know what I'm saying. Sometimes I don't want God to know because I am a sinful person. I don't always live my life in a way that is pleasing to Him. He is always aware of what's going on in our lives. He sees our needs. He knows our needs. He knows the intimate parts of us. In fact, in Matthew, he talks about he sees the needs of the birds of the field and meets their needs. And same way, he sees our needs as well, and he will meet our needs. He is intimately concerned for us and what we are doing. But here in his condemnation, his commendation for this church, he lists out three specific areas. He lists their toil and their endurance. He lists their maintaining of doctrinal purity and holiness. He lists out their dedication to Christ and the message there. We're going to look at all three of those very briefly here in a second. Their toil, their endurance in working to spread the gospel and build the church in Ephesus, even under the persecution of the Roman emperor and the culture. One of the commentarians said this. He says, The Ephesians had toiled to the point of exhaustion and borne patiently the hostility of a society at odds with their goals and efforts. They toiled. The word toil, it's not just their working, not just their doing the work, but specifically God used the word toil. Anybody a toil at work? You struggle through, you fight through, you get through, you endure through it in spite of it. Remember in college, Maybe writing a paper and you had, I got, I got to make a thousand word paper, thousand word essay, and I'm at 900 words. How am I going to get another hundred words through this? And so you work and you toil. Maybe you got to, I know Pat used to do inventory at Hobby Lobby, and you, that was like toiling through the inventory process. I got to go and count everything in the store, everything in the back room, and nobody wanted to be there at inventory time, right? It was a struggle. It was not just a joyful time to be there. And yet, God says, I see your toiling. I see the hard work you're doing. I see how you get through it. And you endure. Then in the, the second part, he, see, he says, I see the pure, your purity in life and doctrine. He says, you cannot bear with those who are evil. I see how you've set yourself apart. You've, you've made yourself that, made sure that what you believe is exactly what I want you to believe. You made sure that your life lines up, that you're, you're setting yourself apart and you're not giving in to the ways of the world. You're not giving in to what the world says is okay. You're setting yourself up and you are living a life that is pure. Your language is pure. Your jokes are pure. Your thought life is pure. You're, where you go and shop, you don't go to those areas. You don't go to the red light district. You don't even go into those places. Your life is set apart, and people know there's a difference. He says, I commend you for that. Those that come in that are, that are presenting false doctrine, you stand up to them. The false apostles, what they would do at that time, you'd have people coming in to speak because they realized this was a moneymaker for some people, so they would come in claiming... Paul laid his hands on me and has passed on his ministry so I will become his successor. Or Peter has now passed on his ministry to me, has laid hands on me, so I'm going to be now the spokesperson for Peter or James or John or any of these other apostles. And so they would go around claiming to be the next apostle because they say that the apostles had laid their hands on them. 
And the churches didn't know. They didn't have a way to send a quick text. Uh, Dear John, did you pass your name on? Did you pass on your ministry to so-and-so? Or, or didn't have, couldn't send an email. They had to send it by courier pigeon to find out. And Jesus is saying here, I commend you because you examined them. You didn't just accept their word, that they were a, a servant of God. You didn't, you didn't just accept what they said. You examined them, and you examined what they were teaching to see if it lined up with Scripture, with the teachings of the other apostles. The Message Bible says it this way. It says, I see what you have done, your hard work, your refusal to quit, and I know that you can't stomach evil. You've set yourself apart and maintained your purity. The purity of life was a hallmark of this small community of faith. They did not let themselves get corrupted by the culture. That's easy to do. It's easy to, to allow ourselves just to, to get corrupted. It doesn't mean that we're going to step off the cliff and fall into some massive major sin. It doesn't happen that way. It's little steps here, little steps Little step, little compromise here, little compromise there. Little, a friend here, you, maybe you shouldn't be spending as much time with. A, a person over here, you shouldn't be spending as much time with. And slowly, 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 their influence corrupts us. But this church had maintained its purity away from the world. The Nicolaitans at that time, I mean, literally, God says, "I hate them." What does He say? He says. I have this, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, that I also hate. Who are the Nicolaitans? Break it up into two words. Nico means to conquer. Laetans is the word we get laity from. It means the people. So these are literally folks who came in and set themselves up in, in power in the church over the laity. Think of like the bishops and the cardinals and those who come out of the Catholic Church and others who set themselves up as to lord their power over the people. Now, you look to me as your pastor, hopefully you have not felt like I've ever lorded my authority or my power over you and said, you must do this. Hopefully I've come alongside you and loved you and tried to serve you as your pastor. That's really what a pastor does. He's a shepherd who comes alongside to shepherd the sheep, to shepherd the people that God has given to him. But these Nicolaitans came in and they set themselves up in a power structure over the churches trying to lord their power and pushing down the people in the church, trying to gain money and wealth and power and ambition. And not only that, others talked about them, other church leaders, and said they had an unrestrained indulgence. In other words, their lives, they gave into the world. They gave into the patterns of the world. They gave into the lifestyle of the world. They preached one thing and set themselves up as this example, but really in private... They gave in. In private, their lives did not match up with Scripture. The Nicolaitans. We call those hypocrites, right? We call those people hypocrites because they're preaching one thing and living another. Preaching one thing, living another. And God says, I hate their actions. This group is also mentioned in the next section there in Revelation. We're not going to get to if you were curious about it, I preached, we preached about this about four and a half years ago. You can go back in our podcast and listen to it. But the church of Pergamos, they didn't reject the Nicolaitans. They accepted them. And God says, I have this against you, that you accept 
the works of the Nicolaitans. So the church in Ephesus was known for its purity in life and doctrine. Thirdly, they were known for their dedication to Christ. He says, I commend you because you are dedicated to Christ. You, you endured a lot of hardship for Christ's sake, and yet you are continually dedicated to the cause of Christ and what God wants to do in the world through you. In fact, Chuck Swindoll says it like this. He says, the Ephesian Christians face special challenges. Because they refused to bow the knee to the goddess Diana or the image of the emperor, they found themselves maligned, slandered, boycotted, and abused, not unlike the Jewish merchants in Berlin in the 1930s, and Christians, the Christians in Ephesus would have been objects of physical violence and social ostracism and economic oppression, and yet they endured. They bore up under the load. Clearly, Ephesus had been taught well by its pre- predecessors, Paul, Timothy, and John. These were not fair-weather Christians. We think about fair-weather fans of the Broncos or whatever other team you may, they follow the Broncos or they they cheer root for them in the good years and yet the bad years they fall away. Well, I'm now going to go root for somebody else. You cheer for this group now, but as soon as they're not living up to the standard you think they'll live to, you go on to the next. Fairweather fans, these were not fairweather Christians. They followed even when times were not good. And for them, it was hard. Being a Christian in Ephesus was not easy. Having that culture constantly pounding, pounding, pounding on them was not easy. Having to live up to the expectations that God had for them in that culture was not easy. And I would say for us as God's church here, it's not easy either. We go to work. We're around family who don't understand we, 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 people who criticize us because of our stance on God's word said, well, you know, culture has moved beyond that stance. This is such an old book. It was you know, 2,000 years old. Really, you're going to follow this as your standard of living? Culture has moved so far beyond that. God's word never changes. God's word never changes. So we also have to face some of that in our lives to live that way, to live a life of purity and doctrine, to make sure we are toiling correctly, we are toiling and enduring to the end, make sure that we are continually, continuing to be dedicated to Christ through our lives. But if God had stopped there, that'd be a good ending. But the next word there in verse 4, Jesus says, but I have this against you. He now steps up to correct them of a pretty major issue. I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Ouch. All these things are good. You're toiling, you're enduring, you're pure, you're doctrinally sound, you're dedicated to all that all that I've called you to be, but you've abandoned your love for me. You've abandoned your love that you had at the very beginning. Outwardly, the church looked to be in great shape. Outwardly, the church looked to be perfect and moving down the road, but God says, I don't, I'm not as concerned about your outward appearance as what's going on inside. He's more concerned with our hearts than he is the outward response. Because once he gets our hearts, once he controls this, 
the outside appearance, the way that we live our lives, the motivation behind it is very different. Outwardly, it looked very healthy. Their doctrine was right on. Their lifestyles of the members were right on. They matched their professions for Christ. But yet, he says, you are in danger of becoming that pharisaical church that would in time lead to their death. You're risking living a life where you're depending on your works and that justifies your relationship and your religiosity, and that in time is going to lead to your death. In other words, he says, you're obeying out of duty instead of obeying out of love. You're obeying out of duty instead of obeying out of love. I live my life in such a way that I don't fear how God's going to judge me because I know I'm in his hand. Remember we talked about that in Galatians chapter 4. We are in his hand. We are held in his hand. I cannot be removed out of his hand. He has adopted me into his family and I cannot be removed. I'm so grateful for what God has done for me. I'm so grateful for how God has restored me as one of his children. It causes me to fall on my face and say, God, I love you. How can I serve you today? Not out of fear or obligation or a sense that God's going to cast his judgment on me if I don't do a certain, live a certain way. I now live and I act and I talk and I, in such a way because it's, it's my love for Christ that drives me. It's my love for God that pushes me. It's my love for God that call, helped us to go to North Korea to work with those folks who are our enemies of our government. Because remember, one time we were all enemies of God, right? We were all enemies of God, and He's now accepted us back into His family. And our, we ought to be motivated by love, not by duty. Motivated by love and what, uh, what God has done for us, not a sense of obligation or duty. Hopefully when you come here and you serve in, in, in the ministries of the church here, you're doing it out of a sense of, I love God so much, I want to see how much, where can I serve? Where can I serve? How can I serve more? Because my love for God increases the more I serve. Not out of a sense of, okay, I've got to make coffee this morning. I'm so thankful for the welcome team that comes and sets up. They're here every morning, every Sunday morning early, setting up those tents, setting up coffee so, and, and donuts so that we can enjoy, when we get here in the mornings, we can enjoy that nice hot coffee and donuts and fellowship together. That's awesome. I'm so thankful that you guys do that. And they don't do it out of a sense of duty. They do it out of a sense of love. Say, I love God. I love God's church. How can I serve the church? How can I serve there? Because I want people to see the love of Christ I have. You know, that's a huge difference between duty and love, right? Think of like the Gulf. Think of the Grand Canyon, one side to the other. It's almost impossible, unless you're evil can evil, to get from one side to the other. You millennials will get that reference someday. It's almost impossible to jump across that. And, but that's what God wants us over here. We are, so we are obeying and following Him and serving out of love rather than serving out of obedience. He wants our hearts. And Jesus proclaims His jealousy there. He says, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Do you know that God is jealous for our relationship 
God is jealous for us. He desires to know us intimately and for us to know him intimately. It's not just this cursory relationship, not like you have with your boss or your teachers or other people around us. He wants to know us intimately, and he does, and he wants us to know him intimately. He is jealous for anything that draws our attention away. He says, you have abandoned your first love. With all their doctrinal and cultural purity, this church had forgotten to keep developing their relationship with God. They just walked away. They walked away from it. They didn't lose it. They walked away. They left it behind. Reminds me of a story of, I've heard and probably told here before of a couple driving down the road when they were little, when they were younger and they're getting in love and they're driving down the road and they had one of those, they were in their truck and they had one of the seats that stretched out, the bench seat that stretched all the way across the front of the truck. Any of you guys remember those? And so what the, the man's driving down the road and where's, the, where's his girlfriend? Right up next to him, right? Saddle right up next to him, sitting close, snuggling up. Was there any love? I couldn't do that with Regina. We had a stick shift between us. She, she, she didn't like to snuggle up on top of the stick shift in the parking brake. I tried to get her to, but she wouldn't do it. Years later, they're driving down the road, and the wife turns to the husband and says, Honey, I just don't feel as close to you as I once was. He looks over at her, and she's sitting way over on her side by the window. He says, Well, honey, I wasn't the one who moved. It's, it's that way with us and God. God is never the one moving away from us. If our relationship, if your relationship with, with God is not what it used to be, He is not the one who moved away. He is not the one who moved. He has stayed firm. He has stayed steady, moving ahead and drawing us, trying to draw us into a relationship. We're the ones who moved over to the window. I can attest there are times in my life when I've been the one who moved, not just to the window, but outside the window. And I've had to crawl back in again and get up close to my Lord. Jesus said, you have abandoned your first love. What was it you used to do when, when you first became a Christian? What was it that you, how, how did you used to live? What are, those, what are those things that drove you? What excited you when you first became a Christian? I remember getting God's word going, this is awesome. There's some stuff. Mom, Dad, did you know this was in here? Talk to your friends, talk to my youth pastor, my children's pastor. Did you know these things were in there? They're going, yes, I did. It was exciting to read God's word. It was exciting to come to God in prayer. It, it wasn't a drudgery, oh, okay, I gotta pray today. I got, I'll, I'll pray before my meal, okay. Those things were exciting. I wanted to share with my friends. I wanted to share with those who were around me because I didn't want them to go to hell either. I wanted them to come into this relationship with Jesus. Those were exciting times. Get back to those things you did at first. Let the love of God just totally enfold you and comfort you, envelop you, so that He gets your heart again. Matthew 23 and, and following, Jesus said, This is the kind of love He's talking about. And He says, And He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. This is a great and first commandment. And the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That is the love he's talking about. You have abandoned your first love. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, with everything that is within you. 
You love him with all that you are. You give him your heart. Remember when you first prayed and said, Jesus, I accept you. I ask you to come into my heart. It's a picture of what we are asking Jesus to do, to come in and take control of this body, to take control of my mind, to take control of all that I am. He comes in and takes control of that heart, the central point in our life from which everything comes out. Right? Everything in our life, our physical life, depends on this heart functioning. If our heart stops, this body stops. The brain stops, they can keep my body alive with machines and stuff, keep my heart pumping, and the body stay alive. But when the heart stops, everything's done. Has Jesus lost your heart? Have you given in to the cold orthodoxy of life, depending, trying to be so pure to do everything just right and become satisfied with letting your actions make you look like you're spiritual? When Jesus says, really, this is what I want. I want you to come to me in love. I want you to love me with all that you are and love your neighbors yourself as an outpouring of your love for Christ, an outpouring of God. So you're not just going through the motions, but it becomes a driving force, a driving passion. When I'm driving in the mornings, I always pray, God, put somebody in my car today that can be blessed as a result of being here, that you will speak to through me. That drives me as I'm driving down the road, three, four, sometimes uh, 150, 200 miles a day, that God will use me in such a way that this person who's sitting behind me will not get out until they are changed. That they will not leave my car in the same way they were when they first got in. Whether it's two miles, five miles, 30 miles, 80 miles. That they will leave my car changed and in one step closer to a relationship with Christ. I don't do that out of a sense of, I've got to do this because I'm the pastor. Or I've got to do this because I need to work on my evangelism techniques. I do it because I love God. And my impact in, in community, my impact with those around me, is an outpouring, a natural outpouring of my love for Christ. And there are times when I'm driving, I'll be honest, there are times when I just do not want to talk to that person. There are times when I would rather just put a set of headphones on and I want to just ignore that person in the back seat. And they want to ignore me too because they put their headphones on as well. There are times when I give in and I'm like, I'm just not in the mood today, God. You ever feel that way? <laughs> God, I'm just not in the mood today to talk to that person. And yet, those are just the times when God says, you need to talk to that person. Are we looking for those opportunities? So that's the problem. God sees, he looks at this church and he goes, you're doing great things. Your actions are awesome. You're living life that's pure. You're toiling. You're enduring in this culture and society. But you've lost your first love. You've stopped doing those things which you did at first. So now what do we do? How do we fix it? You know, as a guy, guys are always trying to fix things, right, ladies? Guys are always trying to fix your problems. That's natural. It's how God made us. So now, how do we fix this problem? Verse 5, God says this, Remember, therefore, 
from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. And if not, I will come to you, remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The three R's to remember. He says, remember, repent, and repeat. We're going to talk about all three of those real briefly here. Remember, literally, keep on remembering. Keep on remembering what God did. Keep on remembering how God has has, um, saved you. Keep remembering all the things and go back. Never forget. Go back to the time where that flame first grew faint. Remember that time in your life when you started slipping away in your relationship to God. Remember, go back to what you were doing. Remember. We talk about that during the communion time when we do Lord's Supper. We remember what Christ did for us. We remember through the bread and the, and the, and the juice. We remember how Christ sacrificed himself for us on the cross. We remember God's sacrifice for us. Take an inventory and evaluate where you are now. And when you take that inventory, ask yourself, what's missing in your life? What's missing in your life? If your relationship with Christ started to grow faint a week ago, two weeks ago, a month ago, two months ago, a year ago, it started kind of getting weakish, what changed? Go back and take an inventory of your life and ask ask God, what is missing in my life now? Secondly, repent. In other words, a change of mind resulting in a change of attitude and action. Remember, God wants our hearts. We repent, we repent, we repent. We talk about repenting of our sins when we come to faith in Christ. We repent, we make that change, 180 degree change in lifestyle and actions. We repent. It's thinking differently about our sin and thinking about how God thinks of it. The sins of apathy, going through the motions, legalistic routine, like you've always done it that way. Repenting of those things and saying, God, bring me back to do things and live my life in a way that honors you and pleases you. Repenting lets us know that labor, purity, and those deeds are no, no substitute for love, passion, and devotion. The works we do are no substitute for this. God looks at our hearts, not our behaviors. If our hearts are right, our actions will naturally follow, but this, it has to start here. And repeat, repeat those things which you excited us at first. What were the first works we did? That's the key to restoring our first love. Go back and doing those first works again. Go back and do those first works again. Get back into God's word. Get back on your knees before him. Get back to sharing the, the joy of your salvation with those around you. Not that you're being judgmental. Not that your people are going to walk away immediately following Jesus. But you're sharing. It ought to be a natural part of our conversation with all those around us. Is your love for Christ, is it evident with all those that come in contact with you? Is it evident with your friends and family? Is it evident with your coworkers that you are a follower of Jesus? Not a churchgoer, okay? But you are a follower of Jesus. Is it evident in the reports you write? Is it evident in the jokes you tell? Is it evident in during, during your break times? Is it evident in your work ethic? Is it evident to all those around? Praying, giving thanks, singing songs, telling others, dancing joyfully. Say, woo, God, you saved me. I'm so excited and you just can't stop. 
and you're excited because of what God has done for you? Is there an awareness of His presence in your continual conversations with and about Him? The three R's. Remember, repent, repeat. But what happens if we don't get to that? What happens if we just let that slide? The final R is a scary one. He says, if you don't repent, I will remove your lampstand. This is the church at Ephesus that was standing up. It was being this huge, bright lamp, shining star in that, in that city that was so full of hedonism and sin. It was standing up, and God says, you lost your first love, and if you don't come back and repent. Notice he didn't say they don't change their actions. They don't change their lifestyle. He says, if you don't come back and get this right, I will remove the lampstand from its place. Now remember, John is writing this 45 years after the church was founded. Within 100 years of writing this, the church in Ephesus was no more. God left it up to them. He says, if you don't repent, he says, I will come in and do something because I can't have a church functioning in that city whereas people do not love me. I cannot have a church functioning there that's just going through the motions where its heart is not totally committed to me. The church was given a chance to come back to what they once were. And if they did not rekindle the fire of their first love, God was going to remove the lampstand. Remove it. Just shut it down. It's the heart he is after. That's a scary, scary thought, you know. But yet, in this situation, God has not given up on them. He says there's hope. There's hope for you still. If you come back to me, there is hope for you still if you repent of your sins and come back to me. The future was in their, in their hands. Were they going to repent? A year or so later, John was released from Patmos after Domitian died and said that he, was, he went back to Ephesus. And in Ephesus, he had to be, he was so weak and frail from his time on the Isle of Patmos that he had to be carried by the leaders of the church to, to their fellowship every Sunday to go and preach and to share. And I don't think he preached every Sunday, but he was lifted up and brought to church. It was such a passionate part of his life. He longed to be there with the church, with the people. He longed to be there to impart truth and knowledge and wisdom and to impart God's word on them. The last apostle living who had been with Jesus. He was carried because his devotion, his heart was there. His heart was fully committed to God. And he challenged the church there. Commit your hearts, commit your hearts, commit your hearts. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Recommit yourself to him. Repent of those sins.